If you enjoy listening to Voices in Cloud, check out David Linthicum's reports on gigaohm.com. They're about data complexity and cloud solutions, addressing many of the topics covered in this podcast series. Hey guys, welcome to the GigaOM Voices in Cloud podcast. This is the one place where you can hear from industry thought leaders providing no-nonsense advice on how to succeed with cloud computing, IoT, edge computing, and cognitive computing. I'm Dave Lenthicum, best-selling author, speaker, and executive, and uh, Beatless Geek. And this week, my special guest is Randy Bias, good friend of mine. Randy is a recognized influencer in cloud computing and entrepreneur, writer, speaker, futurist. Randy, uh, uh, let's see. <laughs> accurately predicted, I, let, I love this, Randy, predicted uh, the ge- ge- uh, geometric growth rate of AWS. He is an advocate for open source technology as a foundational business model element in companies traditionally tied to proprietary models. Notably, Randy, Randy has initiated and led successful open sourcing efforts for several traditional ISVs independent software vendors. He has declared a top 10 cloud pioneer. He has been declared a top 10 cloud pioneer for by Information Week's digital influencer by Ford. So I hope I got through that okay. So fill us in, Randy. I haven't talked to you in like three, four years. What you've been doing since then? Has it really been that long, Dave? Has yeah, it really yeah been- it was before, that was before uh, uh, cloud technology partners got sold. Wow. It doesn't seem like it's been quite that long. I mean, it feels like it's been that long, but... Well, I've known you since 2003, so that's been 16 years, believe yeah. it or not. So it's a, yeah. it's, I mean, it, the years are running together, man. We're getting, we're getting to be old men, old cloud men. Yeah, old cloud men. Yeah, I've just been uh, most recently uh, working for Juniper Networks, where I have been helping them really figure out um, their open source models. They are really transitioning, you know, like a lot of the industry from being exclusively a hardware company to really hardware and software company. And, you know, as we all know, there's sort of an ongoing shift towards open source first strategies for most enterprises. And so uh, Juniper is trying to meet that need with their open source software called Tungsten Fabric, which is an SDN controller. And I'm one of the folks that's driving open source strategy across Juniper and helping them with um, being a better open source company. That's awesome. And you've been, uh, you've been there for a while now, hasn't it been like four or five years? It's coming up on three years, actually. Wow. That's great, man. Congratulations on the success there. So what are their, what are they working on besides the open source stuff that you're leading? Uh, I mean, to be honest, a lot of it's not the really the interesting stuff. It's it's sort of the nuts and bolts of how do we make sure that you know we consume open source software in the right ways. You know, you know, consume the right licenses. Um, how do we contribute back in the right ways? How do we manage our risks? You know, just that real kind of big company type uh, pieces. That that for me hasn't been the interesting part. The interesting part's really been on the tungsten fabric side where we had to take a piece of software that we had launched as open source um, that was Contrail, which became Open Contrail. And then uh, we realized that uh, we had, hadn't really done it in the way that was sort of the standards and best practices. So we relaunched or rebooted the community, rebranded Open Contrail to Tungsten Fabric, put Tungsten Fabric into the Linux Foundation, and then had been going through all of the work of aligning Juniper to be a better open source contributor. And, and that's just a really sort of much more drawn out process than I would expect, right? It's not a startup, right? There's all this momentum. So um, there's a lot of relearning and, and building new muscle memory around how you, uh, you know, run an open source community, how you contribute to the open source software and how you 
be a good participant, not just sort of the, the one dominant contributor in the room. So speaking of open source, I got uh, one topic that I'm really interested in talking about. Has OpenStack finally found itself? And you and I, I think we've, all the podcasts we've done, and there's been uh, probably a dozen in the last uh, 10, 15 years, have talked about kind of open source stuff, the emerging cloud market, and then more lately, the kind of the OpenStack market and where things are going. You were kind of the leader in that space when it first came out, but also I think one of the, uh, I think you're productively critical uh, in terms of where OpenStack needed to go. I think you turned out to be right, but has it finally found itself, Randy? I don't, I don't, I personally don't think so. I, I know some folks that are still sort of in that ecosystem that do believe that, um, that there's an opportunity to complete this pivot. So for, for those who aren't paying a lot of attention, right, you had the OpenStack Foundation, which is doing all these OpenStack summits twice a year and, you know, the big boom and hype cycle. And then uh, a year or two ago, they started this kind of very subtle pivot where they created a whole new, uh, governance uh, structure and technical governance structure uh, called open infrastructure and really have been trying to become the open infrastructure foundation and they launched with something called Kata containers and what they were doing was they were sidestepping the mess that really got made in OpenStack land uh, because there are real problems real structural problems with the way that the board and the TC operated the way they interacted and uh, the way that the developers though the culture that sort of arose in that open stack developer community so they kind of tried to make a whole new community uh, with Kata containers but I sort of feel like it's too little too late I mean Kubernetes has already risen to the top um, you know, a lot of the Kubernetes ecosystem is very uh, active and then, you know, it's not really talked about um, very much, but there's a certain amount of tension between some of these foundations. I, I do think that the OpenStack folks are more sort of predisposed to play nice with others, but not all the other foundations necessarily want to play nice with each other in open source land, which is sort of a shame because it's, you know, it's all, we're all in it together in terms of uh, building public commons that are good for everybody. Yeah, I noticed that open source groups, they, they have a tendency to have some uh, uh, distrust of each other, even though they're out really kind of moving after, after, over, after the open source stuff. Well, some of the research I did, and certainly if you're talking about OpenStack, is there any public cloud instances of OpenStack left, or is it all just private cloud stuff? There, there are, but it's, they're all small. I mean, there's IBM Cloud, which is still nominally OpenStack. Um, there's... Uh, cloud ops out of Montreal. There's there's a bunch of little kind of hosting providers that are running uh, small OpenStack deployments. And OpenStack, you know, to be honest, it, it, the maturity has increased. It's gotten better, easier to deploy, easier to manage. But like really foundational problems have never been addressed, like using Keystone for identity management, which was always a huge mistake. Uh, Neutron has never gotten to where it needed to get in terms of being uh, you know, uh, the networking component um, and sort of first order support for Kubernetes isn't really there. I mean, you got to go to Kata containers to get that. And so it, it's, it's a lot better, but it's not something that you could use to compete against Amazon. And uh, probably people would disagree with me, but I don't even think you can compete against VMware. And if you can compete against VMware, I'd like to see where that's happening, because as far as I can tell, it's never happened. Yeah, I used to run into it a ton back in 2013 and uh, even did some OpenStack projects, but I haven't seen it too much. I've seen it being uh, actually pushed out of some of the enterprises as people move into the public clouds. I think that's yeah. just kind the of place, a general trend. Yeah, the place where it's one is really the carriers. Yeah, carriers and niche sort of uh, applications like these hosting providers. It's not, it's been pretty much 
totally unsuccessful in the enterprise. Now, some people point to some really large deployments like Walmart or, or whatever, but, you know, success in the enterprise means broad adoption like VMware has. It doesn't mean, you know, sort of a few lighthouses. That doesn't help anybody. So in 10 years, do you think we'll be still talking about OpenStack? No. Yeah, I agree with you. And we get, and in fact, I don't think we'll be talking about VMware because I believe that we'll get to a point where we're using something like Kubernetes on bare metal um, and, you know, those things, VMware and OpenStack, you know, and, and most of the virtualization layer don't really add a lot of value going forward in the future. So I think you're going to see them, you know, progressively removed as Kubernetes on bare metal matures. Yeah, speaking of Kubernetes, so why has that infrastructure kind of taken off and, uh, and kind of accomplished what OpenStack couldn't? I think the hilarious part, and this is what drives me nuts, is because it's got an opinionated architecture. And the reason that drives me nuts is, you know, my startup at the time that was one of the first three startups for OpenStack land, we were predicated on having a, a, a prescriptive uh, approach where we made our OpenStack product look as much like Amazon Web Services as possible, the APIs, the behaviors, everything. I talked about this so many times, gave so many presentations about it, but at the time, Nobody wanted a prescriptive approach. Everybody wanted their science projects. So then they all piled into OpenStack. They made, you know, a zillion snowflakes. 80 to 90% of those snowflakes failed horribly because science experiments are just, excuse me, but IT guys scratching the itch or doing mental masturbation in a way that is unproductive. And the reality is, is that you want to get the stuff up and running as soon as possible. So just because you're hobby horses, you want to make, you know, Cisco work or EMC work or some random storage system work with OpenStack that doesn't today, just it adds a risk. And Kubernetes came along and said, hey, we don't care what the infrastructure is. We care about your applications because that's where the business is. And this is the way your applications need to be architected. This is how they're going to be deployed. This is how they're going to be scaled. This is how they're going to be upgraded. This is how you plug networking in. This is how you plug storage in. It was a much smarter approach. And, and, and then, you know, there was a certain amount of fatigue, I think, around the sort of snowflakes. And people were like, ah, oh, this is a breath of fresh air. We're just going to use Kubernetes. We're going to follow this model. It seems to have won. And I really think it was because it was a prescriptive approach that it won. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. I think ultimately that's just really just the sound architecture of Kubernetes really kind of kind of uh, saved the day. So in looking at the uh, the other alternatives out there, Mesos and Swarm and things like that, and doing projects on all of those, it was just so much easier to deal with the Kubernetes. And now that the ecosystem has grown up around that and supported by all the ver all the various cloud providers and private cloud providers, you know, it's really kind of a no-brainer. And it's so much so that I think many tech companies, high-tech companies, are aligning their strategy behind Kubernetes, which I haven't seen in a long time. I guess we aligned, they aligned their strategy behind OpenStack a while ago, but you know, now they're looking to Kubernetes to kind of get them out of the woods. What's your thought on that? Oh yeah, we, I mean, Juniper has been adopting it pretty dramatically. We moved the whole Tungsten fabric control plane to Kubernetes-based model, uh, which was fantastic. It made scaling it, updating it, distributing it, everything just significantly easier. Uh, we're working on an internal project right now called Atom, which is meant to be sort of a, a very lightweight network-centric platform-as-a-service system that we can uh, refactor all of our software onto. So it runs on one common platform, and that's all Kubernetes-powered. Um, and I'm seeing that over and over again. And, and the reality is, is Kubernetes is just lightweight enough that 
um, you can you can pretty much do it anywhere. So I see a lot of folks who have already invested in OpenStack, they start moving towards the edge and, and you had kind of like the OpenStack folks trying to make a play for the edge, but OpenStack can't really be trimmed down. I mean, it's sort of a, uh, it's sort of a pig from a resource perspective and it's just not designed from a scaling perspective and it's not designed to be distributed. So you see people putting Kubernetes on metal at the edge, like the eBay guys are doing this. Uh, a lot of the carriers are doing this and then running run, in, and sticking with OpenStack and their centralized data centers. But again, as we were talking about earlier, I think over time, even though centralized data centers will put Kubernetes on top of OpenStack and then slowly move OpenStack out of that, out of the middle because it doesn't add any value. So are we, picking, are we picking Kubernetes because because of the architecture or because of the ecosystem support? Are we because of the hype behind it? Well, I I I mean before the hype, <laughs> there was there was use, <laughs> and I think you know we had this race in the early days uh, between Docker and Kubernetes and Mesos, and you know it all sort of materialized uh, when Kubernetes won that race, and um, again that because of that more prescriptive approach. Um, and I think that it's a combination of the architecture and it, it being a winner. I, I mean, I, I know some people think that, you know, everybody's just jumping on the bandwagon, but, but I saw that with OpenStack and I saw it with Kubernetes. And I can tell you that there's a material difference in that people are actually getting, there's broad adoption of Kubernetes and people are getting huge amounts of value from it. I can't point to lots of failed Kubernetes deployments where I could point to just, you know, metric tons uh, failed OpenStack deployments, uh, you know, I mean, the whole Expedia team that deployed OpenStack and failed, they, the entire team was let go at one time back in the day. I'm not going to name names, but, you know, there have been some, there have been some epic failures on the OpenStack front because of how it was architected, uh, the inability of that community to understand that there needed to be a prescriptive approach, and the inability of that community to understand that big tent had to be a real thing. Instead, they 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 pretended to be big tent, but in the in the reality, in the day to day, uh, there wasn't a big tent. You know, there wasn't. They didn't allow competitive projects. They didn't allow people to sort of put the different components together in different ways. They pretended that it was all different projects, but then they forced everybody into this single monolithic six month release cycle where all the projects had to be released and tested together. And I just you know. I, as you step back and think about that, I mean, just everything I just said there was it clearly it was doomed to fail. Yeah, and I think that uh, open source kind of has its own own attraction, especially for small startups. You think about it, I can get an OpenStack was certainly an instance of this, and I think Kubernetes is as well. I can get a free license to very powerful software, and I can uh, create a business model around it. In essence, I kind of don't have to do a lot of R&D efforts, maybe do a lot of components or add-on things that I can sell that's around the particular stack that I'm selling. And th you, that's a business. And I think ultimately, do you think that these things is, are, are you, if you were advising small companies, do you think this would be a, uh, a viable, um, you know, viable strategy going forward? I know you've, you've kind of gone that, gone that way yourself. Is there some risk that's over and above the traditional risk of creating proprietary things? You mean just adopting open source software in, in general as sort well, of I mean, starting, an open source, starting an open source business. And so in other words, I'm going to do OpenStack or I'm going to do Kubernetes and I'm going to build add-ons on top of it in a service-based practice and a distro for the particular system where I'm kind of automating the integration of these various, various things. And that's my business. And the cool thing about that is I don't have to spend a lot of R&D, but I can sell some pretty powerful software. 
And the viability of that seems to be in question if a lot of these open source things kind of fall by the wayside in the future. Do you think that this is maybe just how you place the bets or the open source business in general? Um, so there's a lot in that question, Dave. <laughs> Let me try to unpack it. Um, I mean, I, so I think the first thing is that we, we've definitely seen a sea change to adopting open source first, what I call the open source first strategy, whether it's a startup or large enterprises, um, most everybody's trending that way. Uh, second is that um, when it comes to building business models around open source, you know, we're seeing, you know, a certain amount of thrashing at the moment. And, and you see that with like Redis and MongoDB, um, where uh, small startups have created open source software that then gets broadly adopted. Uh, but people take that software and then start to run it as a service. And uh, that's created a lot of tension um, because it's possible for large companies like an Amazon to come along and say, run Redis as a service. And then Redis, the company is freaking out because they're like, oh, I'm losing against Amazon Web Services. But I think part of what gets lost in that all of that sort of discussion is that you know, ultimately, this is about business agility. This is about product market fit. This is about the way that you attack the marketplace. If you can't be competitive, it's your fault, right? The reason that startups have always existed and that they've been successful against large enterprises is because they've got agility and the ability to zig and zag in a way that large businesses can't even the Amazon web services of this world. You know, when they're bringing up a new service, it's taking them several years to bring that thing into production. They have to run it at such a scale that they've got to like smooth all the rough edges because they could have thousands and thousands of customers on day one. Small startups don't have to worry about those kinds of problems. They can bring up a new service in three to six months or write new software in three to six months. So when they can't compete successfully, it's because of a leadership failure. It's because of business strategy failure. That's not because Amazon came along and took your software and was running it. You should be able to out-execute Amazon at your size, no problem. And so I, I just don't, you know, I don't have any room for those kinds of excuses. And then the last thing there is that um, you know, it is very clear to me that, um, you know, kind of back to that first point that the power of open source is something that has been overlooked for a long time, even inside of Juniper, as I've been having conversations with people about how we do open source and how we uh, participate in other communities. I have to keep reminding people, you know, how many years has Juniper benefited from other people's uh, open source, right? Without FreeBSD, Junos wouldn't have uh, come along as fast or as quickly as it did in the early days. And then you could go down the line and you could talk about the compilers, you could talk about all the open source libraries and other tool chains that people are, are using. And, and, and that's incredibly powerful to have this public commons of software that everybody can benefit from. And I don't think that's gonna go away anytime soon. That That's, that's here to stay. And then it really just becomes a question of, given that that's landscape, there's all this free software, it's expanding rapidly, it's getting better in quality. How do you compete, whether you're putting pieces of it together with your own closed source software or you know, taking some other approach, how do you compete in that sort of new environment? And I think that's part of why people are struggling, but I think the outcome's inevitable. So larger enterprises that are looking to adopt open source, ultimately, you know, this is kind of scary to them because it's uh, you're dealing with uh, stuff that's, uh, you know, designed by committee or designed by a number of different developers that are working together. What would yeah. your advice be to them in terms of kind of quelling their fears? 
Well, I mean, the, one of the funniest things about that attitude is that they don't know it, but they've got all kinds of open source widely deployed inside their enterprise already and have had for a very long period of time. So what they really tend to be concerned about is they tend to be concerned about open source that's more closely related to um, their core business. And what I mean by that is, while they might be using the GNU compiler or other open source tool chains, they don't really think about that as being open source. They're, they, you know, they, they may not even be aware that they're using it at the business level. They've got, you know, just developers and project managers uh, making tactical decisions from day to day. Where they start to get squirrely is if it's say it's a networking company and they've got a piece of networking software that they're going to open source or they want to adopt somebody else's uh, networking software and now it's close to home right now it's close to sort of the the what what drives revenue for them and that's when they start to get squirrely I think and then they start to ask questions like well if we open source this are our competitors going to take it and use it against us. Or if we adopt this networking software and use it, are people going to think that we are not a very good networking company because that's our core business? And that's when I think sort of the, at the business level, some certain amount of thrashing happens. And I say, hey, just relax. It's not about, um, it's not about the sort of what maybes. It's about, it, you know, or what ifs. Um, it's about actual outcomes. If you can uh, release some software as open source or consume somebody else's open source software that's close to your competitive advantage and you in some way get business uh, advantage from that or drive new revenue streams or create some kind of success for yourself, that's all that matters. And, and overthinking sort of uh, the future in that way, I just, I, I sort of think it leads to sort of an analysis paralysis. Yeah, really. I always, I always tell them well, whether, whether they're a way of, de, of consuming software where you have more control over the source code than a proprietary system that can go away very quickly and get bought by somebody you don't want to buy them. So I don't really get the argument, but I, I do hear it from time to time. So we're, what conferences, uh, what, what are open source conferences like these days? You know, what's working, what's not, which ones should we go to, which ones should, should we ignore? I don't know. It's really hard to say, actually. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of KubeCon and Cloud Native because I just think that that's where there's a lot of action, um, and usually that means there's a lot of new ideas. I think the general problem, though, is that from from that perspective on on in open source land and to a degree in cloud land, um, you know, there's a there's a lot of conference and and even foundation fatigue, right? There's Last I checked with the Linux Foundation, I think they had 200 some odd sub foundations and you know, you got OpenStack creating other foundations. And, and so I, I mean, I just think that there's, it's, it's making it hard, right? Every, every business has a fixed budget. They have, uh, you know, tend to have a lot of OpEx pressure. And you know, if, if you add, you know, another 20, 30 conferences a year, it doesn't help anybody, right? So more and more I'm seeing folks uh, really pushing back at, at various enterprises against new conferences. They'll say, why can't we just do this in one of the existing venues? And it's almost like we should move to a model where there's like a couple of major annual conferences in the same place where we just put a lot of these folks together. Like, you know how Oracle World or RSA become these kind of crazy, you know, annual events of 60,000 plus. I, I, I know that's hard to manage, but you'd almost want to see some of these foundations get together and just aggregate everybody so that you could, you know, people could be planning six, eight, nine months in advance to be to the, to these major events and they could just go and show up where they need to be. And I, and I, I know it's, I know it's a lot because that becomes a mega event. Mega events are expensive and painful and hard to coordinate, but uh, you know, it almost seems like that would be better for a while rather than having 
dozens and dozens and dozens of different events for each little niche every year. Yeah, I think all of the, the larger events are vendor Latin. I mean, it's reInvent and Google Next mm -hmm. and all these other things. And uh, yeah, they're going to be controlled by the vendor. And I wouldn't anticipate anything different. And you know, they're paying for it. Typically, the food's better. You know, it's not as expensive to go to. Um, but, you know, these smaller conferences, the, the ability to, you know, really kind of focus on DevOps and, uh, you know, multi-cloud based development and, you know, all these other things that just kind of fallen by the wayside. And it's, it's, it's um, a little concerning to me because I think that we need to have these independent voices uh, in the area so we can kind of um, get people speaking about what's really happening out there versus kind of hearing everything through the voice of the vendor, which is getting louder and louder. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I, and, and, you know, I, I don't know if making sort of a mega event helps or hurts that. Um, I do know that, you know, the smaller events like meetups on the other side are incredibly valuable for that reason you just outlined. And I think what we're identifying is there's that, there's that space in the middle where there's a lot of value for regional or sort of mid-sized events where you can get, you know, more voices and, and less heard voices in the room. But if you have, hundreds of those, um, it just makes it very difficult for people with, you know, limited travel budgets to get there. It, you almost want something that's like a, an event that is composed of many, many small mini events um, where you can get the leverage of everybody traveling to the same place, staying at the same hotel for a fixed period of time, but you're opting into sort of a, a sub event um, at a larger event, but it, that's controlled by the sub-event people. Because the one, the one thing you don't want is complete top-down management, because as somebody who's helped organize conferences before, I can say that there is a high level of variance between the conference organizer's competence, and you're going to have the good conferences survive because they're well-organized, and you don't want to quash that by you know, trying to do a top-down you know, across you know, um, 20 different sub-events. Yeah, we'll see where it morphs. Now that these days where you, know, you can do video on demand and you know, things like that, we do have electronic distribution of these things where you don't have to attend in person and still get the experience. It'll be interesting the way these conferences kind of grow. But I still notice that, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people pick up every year and go to these big vendor conferences. And that seems to be the mm -hmm. case going forward. Anyway, yeah. please pick up a copy of my book, Cloud Computing and Soil Convergence, available on Amazon and other places books are sold. Also, make sure to follow me on Twitter at, at David Linthicum, L-I-N-T-H-I-C-U-M, as well as LinkedIn, where I have several cloud computing courses on LinkedIn Learning. So, Randy, where can we find you on the web these days? Uh, I'm the same everywhere. Randy Bias on Twitter, LinkedIn, GitHub, you know, you name it. Just Randy Bias, all one word. And make sure to go follow Randy Bias right now. It's one of the better, better brains in the industry. I've known Randy for a long time, and he's always getting things right. Until next time, best of luck in building your cloud computing architectures. We'll talk to you soon. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in Cloud, please check out the other ones. Removing hybrid and multi-cloud complexity is the focus of a report that David wrote for GigaOM Research. To find out more about taking IT to the next level, download the single report or subscribe to GigaOM Research. For future forward advice on data-driven technologies, operations, and business strategies.